The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, good morning. Welcome to Bear Creek Church. Please go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 1. And we're going to be taking a look at verses 3 through 12. So 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 12. Well, last week I was able to stand up here and say, Happy Father's Day. So today, let me say, Happy Hottest Day of the Year Day. I do feel obligated to tell you that uh, there are 180 days until Christmas. So maybe that helps you with all the heat. Uh, Thank you, though, for your, your flexibility, especially those of you who typically come to a second service. This must seem inhumanly early for you to be at church. Uh, I do have to say it was a little funny last week when we started at 10, and all those who typically come to first service were in their seats at like 9.45, just bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready to go. So, uh, Seriously, though, this is a, a reason to make sure that you're on our email list. Uh, sometimes these kinds of things do come up. We, we need to make a change to the service, sometimes last minute. Uh, things come up that we didn't necessarily plan for. And so uh, if you're not on our email list, this is just one of the many reasons that you should be. But in suggesting that you be on our email list, that also implies that you check your email from time to time because that would help with this situation. Uh, And then obviously I'd I'd like to ask you just to continue to be praying for Pastor Brian. Uh, Obviously he's he's still not uh, feeling well, so uh, he wasn't able to be with us today, but continue to pray for him and Uh, that he will recover quickly. Well, let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you share in our sufferings. You will also share in our comfort. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired for life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this day. 
Thank you for the songs that we have sung as worship to you. You are our comfort. You are our strength. You are our hope. You are our joy. We can shout and sing for joy, recognizing your grace. When we sin, we can run to you. When we struggle, we can run to you. When we hurt, we can run to you. You are faithful. You are never changing. You are holy. Father, I pray for each of our hearts in this room. I pray for humility. Humility to recognize our need for a Savior. Humility to encourage one another. Humility to recognize the work that you have done and that you continue to do in our lives. Humility to sing praises to you. Lord, I know that at various times in our lives, this is easier than at other times, but certainly our circumstances don't change who you are. When we struggle, you are no less holy. You are no less mighty. You are no less faithful. Therefore, our praise should not be held back. Help us in this area. Help us to not let our circumstances detract from our worship of you. We needed a Savior, and you sent your Son. And now, it is in Christ that our hope is found. He is our light and our strength. He is the stone that the builders rejected. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, last week we talked about spiritual maturity. We talked about a few different aspects and reasons for it. But two of the aspects that we talked about were, one, that spiritual maturity is necessary for when we experience hard things. So when life takes a turn that we didn't plan for, we need to be prepared. And two, we talked about the, the now what, right? Now that we are mature, now what? Today, I want to talk about suffering and comfort, but kind of the, the now what of suffering. And I will tell you, spoiler alert, the now what is comfort and to comfort others. I guess you could say that with Tika's memorial service yesterday, this, this topic was on my mind. Let me share a story with you that was told by Kent Hughes. That Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of a handful of German theologians to stand up to the Nazification of the German church. He was prominent in writing the famous Barman Declaration, which rejected the infamous Aryan clauses imposed by Nazi ideology. Bonhoeffer's courage thrust him into the leadership of the confessing church, along with other stalwarts like Martin Niemerler. Bonhoeffer went so far as to found an underground seminary in Finkenwald, Bavaria, which was, which was closed by Gestapo chief Heinrich Himmler. This led to Bonhoeffer's joining the resistance movement and his being imprisoned by the Gestapo in April 1943. Bonhoeffer's letters from prison became a bestseller after the war. Among the letters is a beautiful poem written to his fiancée, Maria von Wiedmeyer, entitled New Year 1945. Stanza 3 is famous. Should it be ours to drain the cup of grieving, even to the dregs of pain, at thy command we will not falter, thankfully receiving all that is given by thy loving hand. Poignant words that became more so when three months later, just as the war was ending, Bonhoeffer was hung in Flossenburg prison. Fast forward some 18 years 
18 years later across the Atlantic in America when another bride-to-be was grieving the death of her fiancé and found much comfort in Bonhoeffer's poem. Her fiancé, who died from injuries in a sledding accident, was the son of author Joseph Bailey and his wife Mary Lou. When she mailed Bonhoeffer's poem to them, Joe and Mary Lou also found comfort in New Year 1945. Twelve years after this, 30 years after Bonhoeffer's death, Joe Bailey received a letter from a pastor friend in Massachusetts relating that he had visited a terminally ill woman in a Boston hospital for some period of time and had given her Joe's books of poems, Heaven, as a comfort for her soul. The pastor said that the dying woman had stayed awake late the previous night to read it and told him that it was a comfort and all of the comfort that she received from it. A few hours later, she died. The woman, the pastor revealed, was Maria von Wiedmeyer Weller, Bonhoeffer's fiancée three decades earlier. God's comfort circulates among his children, and sometimes it comes full circle as it did with Dietrich Bonhoeffer to Maria von Wiedmeyer and her grief, to Joseph Bailey Jr.'s grieving fiancé, to Joe and Mary Lou Bailey and their grief, and then back to Bonhoeffer's one-time fiancé as comfort in her dying hours. Our text alludes to the astonishing cyclical nature of comfort, its mutuality, its overflowing nature. So this passage in 2 Corinthians is often considered the Bible's greatest text on comfort. The word comfort occurs no less than 10 times in the noun and verb forms, just in verses 3 through 7. Essentially, one-third of all of its occurrences in all of the New Testament. Paul says more about suffering and more about comfort than any other writer in the Bible. And it is here that he says the most about it. In this passage... Paul is choosing his words carefully as he's restating a synagogue blessing, but using Christian terminology. Paul is putting the focus on God as the God of all comfort. So verse 3 of our text says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. The synagogue benedictions then in use began, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God and God of our fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. So Paul takes it and identifies the God of our fathers as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. I think many of us, if not all of us, to some degree, we struggle with an idol of comfort. But in saying that, when we talk about comfort in that way, we we seem to be describing comfort differently than what we see in our text. When we talk about comfort or the idol of comfort, we typically mean easy or without struggle. In our text, the idea of comfort is not related to a lack of suffering, a lack of trials, or a lack of sickness, but instead comfort in suffering or affliction, comfort through suffering, and comfort because of suffering. Here in our text, the idea of comfort is to strengthen much, to encourage, to stand by another and encourage him as he endures testing. Paul wanted his hearers to understand that the merciful Father is the author of all possible comfort. There is no enduring comfort apart from him. 
I appreciate how one commentator defined comfort. They said, it is the overall disposition that comes from resting in God's sovereign and loving rule as manifested in Christ's lordship. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about comfort this morning. But before we get there, let's spend a little bit of time talking about suffering. To fully appreciate what this says about comfort, I think that we need to appreciate the suffering that the comfort relates to. Now, in talking about suffering, Scripture tends to to talk about the why of suffering with two purposes, God's glory and our good. When we respond to suffering well, in a practical way, we demonstrate to to the unbelieving world that Christ is more glorious and precious to us than any pain and difficulty that we might endure. We have the opportunity to show where and in whom we find our true satisfaction. By placing our ultimate hope in Christ, rather than the temporary things of this world, God receives the glory. Yet, while we can maybe see how suffering well gives glory to God, we find it hard to imagine how suffering can possibly be for our good. The body sick with cancer, the paycheck that didn't quite cover our expenses, the grief over an unsaved family member, the sudden end to a marriage due to betrayal, the late-night phone call that changes our life forever. The list of trials and sufferings many of us will endure is extensive. It may seem unimaginable, yet even as we ask God for deliverance, suffering as a Christian serves several purposes that are for our ultimate good. Suffering sanctifies and purifies us. Charles Spurgeon said, Pain teaches us our nothingness. Health permits us to swell in self-esteem and gather much which is unreal, whereas sickness makes our feebleness conspicuous. When earthly pleasures, things, and people are stripped out of our lives, it reveals where we have mistakenly placed our hope. And that is good, because then suffering draws us closer to Christ because we don't have the worldly comforts to rely on anymore. The Lord knows that we have no greater good than to gaze firmly upon him and not the things of this world. Our natural first reaction to suffering is frustration, fear, or anxiety. When your heart is breaking and your world is falling apart, be encouraged and remember that your God has overcome the world. God loves his children, and he is ultimately good. Do not forget these truths, for they are your your lifeblood in times of suffering. No matter what we are facing or how hard it is, God is still good, and God loves his children. Sickness forces us to cast all of our cares on the Lord. Sometimes in our situation of suffering or sickness or affliction, we find ourselves in a position that we can do nothing but turn it all over to the Lord. We're not even able to try to do it on our own. That can feel frustrating, but it may actually be a blessing. We gain perspective of things that really matter and then things that don't. When we are forced to rely on nothing else but God, when we are forced to not rely on ourselves, That is actually a blessing. Sickness can cause us to consider where our confidence is. Is it on ourselves? 
Is it on our, our health and our ability to stay healthy? Is it on our, our medication or our doctors? Or is our confidence ultimately on the Lord, the God of all comfort? During such a season, we may be limited in our ability to serve others. So we have to rely on others. They have to do the work of serving for us. They may take our place and be Martha. And it's good if we are then enabled to be Mary and place ourselves at the feet of Jesus. Pain, if sanctified, creates tenderness towards others. As I take a drink, I'm going to remind you that there is water in the back if anybody is a little warm. The sick feel for the sick when their afflictions have worked in a healthy manner. Once we've been humbled by our nothingness, as Charles Spurgeon put it, we've gained perspective and focused on the Lord. We tend to gain sympathy and love for others who are suffering. You know, one of the things that has been a joy for me to watch as I've attended Johnny and Friends family retreats is the connections with the families. Their situations are not necessarily identical, but there is this shared experience of life, that life is hard, and it took a turn that they didn't plan for. And these families bond in a way that is special. Now, if one of the families is still angry and bitter, it's going to be far harder to have that bond or that connection. But just as we talked last week, with spiritual maturity, with suffering, there is a a now what to it. Our passage in 2 Corinthians seems to be saying that we are to use our time of suffering to comfort others. That God comforts us so that we might comfort others. Verse 4 has an astonishing promise. Because of your experiences, which are different for all of us, you will gain weight wisdom that will enable you to help deal with other people's troubles. So in verse 4, Paul, Paul describes his own experience of comfort and how it graced the Corinthians. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. One of God's purposes in suffering, in the suffering of Christians, is that they would experience direct personal comfort from God. And then, from that experience, be able to minister God's comfort to others because of the wisdom gained. So how do we gain such wisdom? What is the way that Paul gains wisdom, or in this case, that you and I gain wisdom? Paul begins with his own troubles, the hardest troubles he had experienced. Paul is saying, let me tell you about all these hard things that I have experienced and gone through in my life. But it's not a pity party. It's not that you might feel sorry for him. And it is certainly not to put the focus on himself. But it is to say, but God. But God is the God of all comfort. So how did... Paul comfort others with the comfort with which he has been comforted by God? Overall, by his example. As they observed his attitude in and through and after his sufferings, and then there was his prayers. And of course, there were his gentle words of comfort, grace with authenticity and power, so that God's comfort was administered through him. So to some degree, we gain wisdom to comfort others 
by enduring our suffering in a God-honoring way. Paul was certainly one of the most afflicted men ever. He suffered cold, nakedness, beating, imprisonment, criminal assault, shipwreck, betrayal, desolation, desertion, and more. He was a life of perpetual death. 2 Corinthians 4.11 says, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. But notice that in verse 4 of our text, it says, He found that God comforted him in all his afflictions. Not in some, but in all. In every one of these situations, Paul felt the comfort of God. Sometimes through prayer, sometimes through the comfort of others. But it was always from God. Sometimes I think that we, we like to hold on to certain things as though they are outside of God's comfort. We almost pridefully want to have the affliction that is the exception. But Paul says God comforted him in all his afflictions. Notice also the wording, so that, in verse 4. Who comforts us in all our, all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. In our affliction, whatever it is, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, whatever it is. I think this, this stops us from comparison. To say that, well, my suffering or affliction is nothing compared to them, so I'll just keep quiet. No, any affliction. And looking at this passage, I think that we can, can conclude that affliction is essential. At least what we can conclude here is that the affliction was key to Paul's effectiveness in ministry. And affliction is the key to effective ministry today. How countercultural is that? It even runs counter to some who profess to be Christians who will say affliction is evidence of personal sin or deficient faith. Verse 5 supplies the reason why suffering equipped Paul to pass on God's comfort. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Here are the, the sufferings that Here, the sufferings of Christ does not refer to the atoning sufferings of Christ, but to the sufferings that come to those involved in the service of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, we we looked at verse 11 already, but for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. They are Christ's sufferings because they come from fellowship in him and following him and add to the fulfillment of the suffering destined for the body of Christ. Colossians 1.24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. They are Christ's sufferings because because he is in his people. Acts 9 says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul wasn't persecuting Jesus specifically. He was persecuting Christians. 
But Jesus says, you are persecuting me. By persecuting them, you are persecuting me. So again, Paul references his own troubles. Usually when people speak of their own troubles, they tend to grumble and complain. Complaining, therefore, allows troubles to become excuses for wrong living. My troubles are the reason why my life is so messed up. My troubles are the reason I am so unhappy or why I'm so bitter but, and why I feel jealous of you or envious of you. It's because you've had such an easy life in comparison to me and why you can't hold me responsible for how I live. My troubles tend to be my excuse for myself. Paul is going to get to how he learned wisdom. And in fact, as we look through this passage, not only wisdom, but joy and the ability to have a persevering faith and endurance, the ability to to hang in there through anything. Paul sets a radically different example here. Paul shows he gained wisdom and how he learned joy and perseverance of faith. Verse 6 says, If we are afflicted, It is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. It is for your comfort. The opponents maintain that that Paul's sufferings disqualified him as an apostle. But Paul maintains that it that it is his sufferings, and those are the things, those are the means of God that he uses to strengthen other believers. In looking at this verse, John MacArthur said, Paul was referring to the body of Christ's partnership of suffering, which mutually builds godly patience and endurance. All believers need to realize this process, avoid any sense of self-pity when suffering for him, and share in each other's lives the encouragement of divine comfort they receive from their experiences. Paul sees God's sovereign hand and redemptive purpose in everything that happens to him, whether distress or comfort. Paul uses the same words over and over again to describe his troubles, suffering and afflictions. They're similar words. David Pallison makes this distinction between the two. He said, affliction means you're you're squeezed, you're under pressure, extreme, extreme pressure, right? Just life is hard. Suffering means that you're in pain. It hurts. Wisdom is gained through suffering. The way we gain wisdom is we suffer. Now, obviously it has to be the right kind of suffering. The mishandling of suffering is how we show ourselves to be fools. Verse 7 says, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you are... As you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comforts. You share in our sufferings. Behind this verse lies Paul's teaching that all believers, as members of one body of Christ, are joined together so that every dimension of life in Christ is shared among them. We recall what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The more fully this reality influences the attitudes and actions of believers toward each other, the more fully they experience satisfying fellowship through Christ with one another. So now, Paul moves from the general with verses 4 through 7 
to a particular in verse 8. He expresses the experiential weight of his burden. He does not just leave it at generalities. Verse 8 says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We don't want you to be unaware. We don't want you to be ignorant. We don't want you to to be unaware of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. He doesn't give the the blow-by-blow details, but he gives it in an experiential weight of that experience. It was an affliction that he actually had to go through. This was not just theory. Verse 10 says, He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. We were so utterly burdened. We, were, we despaired of life itself. We were in such danger that we were in deadly peril. We thought we were going to die, Paul is saying. It's interesting that Paul thinks it's important for his specifics to be on the table, at least the experiential part of his specifics. So that we who are reading and we who are hearers actually don't just live in vague generalities about suffering and affliction, but we actually... Here he is going to get into how he got wisdom by discussing the suffering and the hardships that he went through. It's a way for Paul to say, I have legitimately gone through some really hard things and thought I was going to die. But God, but God is the God of all comfort. We see in verse 12 that it says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. The earthly wisdom, worldly wisdom, the the wisdom of the flesh, depending on your translation. It manifests when fallen people instinctively respond to pressure and pain. It's the flesh's way of putting the world together. When we are put in pain or pressure apart from Christ, What tends to come out? How do we respond? We can think in terms of of horizontal versus vertical. The the horizontal is earthly or worldly. Think of just looking at what's out in front of you. While the vertical is where is your focus? Is it a heavenly or a God-focused? Vertical is what you look to when you're despairing. It should be God, but it's not always the case. Examples of horizontal fleshly responses would be grumbling and complaining, anger, fighting, conflict, confusion, anxiety, and fear. We know the term escapism, right? And that can range from from small things to very large, very destructive things. What are we doing with escapism? We're running to something, right? Maybe, Maybe it's food, right? When we're stressed and life is hard, Two scoops of ice cream just isn't going to cut it. We need four scoops tonight. Why? Well, we're going to something that feels good, that provides comfort. It's a temporary comfort, and we know that, but it's still comfort. Paul is trying to say that true, lasting comfort only comes from God. And there are consequences when we react to suffering out of fleshly wisdom. But just to keep it as simple as possible... Certainly, when we, when we react to, 
to circumstances with wisdom of the flesh or a worldly wisdom. In the very least, it, it sabotages our ability to help another person. I'm not going to be able to help others, especially if my response is self-focused or worldly. Our responses reveal the vertical dimension of what rules a person. The instinct of our foolish wisdom is to trust ourselves and control our situation. But how does, how does God in this particular passage kind of break in? I want you to see this. I want you to notice how in 2 Corinthians it reveals particular things about God, but not everything. The actual turning point, I think, is a very disarmingly simple line in the middle of verse 9. Verse 9 says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. But it simply says, Paul simply says, all of this happened. I, I almost died in Asia, suffering and affliction and so forth, in order that something else good would happen. There is a sovereign God who is over and in all things. Our sufferings fundamentally have meaning. God is with us in our suffering, and he is up to something good. These things happen in order that the fundamental shift from foolish responses to a wise response is when your life is threatened to trust in God who raises the dead. This is not an abstract promise. It is a relevant promise that meets the need of the moment. The resurrection of the dead is a revelation of God's unsurpassable power. If we are honest, our problem is often that we have way too much trust in ourselves. We trust God in in some things, maybe the the big things, but in the day-to-day, we have way too much trust in ourselves. That as we face difficulty, problems, trouble, an instinct of our fallenness is to trust ourselves. So it becomes me and my trouble going at it. You think of the experience of, of anxiety. Anxiety is so often linked with the, with the failure of our attempts to control the world around us. The world is out of control, so we become anxious. Our health is out of our control, or our relationships are out of our control, or our money is out of our control, or, or what's happening in our church is out of our control, or the weather is out of our control, and we become anxious. What's driving within that anxiety at some level is, I desire to control outcome. And this world that we live in is so hazardous. It's chancy. We, we, we dangle by a thread at times. We live in a very fragile world. The attempt to control, you, you can see how that, that fundamental trust in myself, that fundamental orientation of my own will, power, agenda, wishes, loves, You can see how every one of these behavioral, emotional responses arises out of self-trust. Why would I go for escapism? Because that's what I'm trusting is going to make me feel better. Why would I retaliate with anger, violence, counterattack, hostility, damning someone, gossiping about them, backstabbing them? Because that's what one does when all you've got is yourself. 
And if somebody does you wrong, you do them wrong back. If they do you evil, do them evil back. There's absolutely no reason to forgive another person unless there's something bigger than myself. Notice what it says. It doesn't just say to rely or or trust is another way of saying that. To rely or trust not on ourselves but on God. But it gives details. It gives specifics. The God who, who what? The God who raises the dead. It's interesting in this particular passage, of all the things that could be said about God, he picks out the one thing that if you're facing a death sentence is the one thing you most need to know. He is the God who raises the dead. This is not just a a random, oh, trust God and here's my favorite promise and just remember that you're a child of God, which that is true. Those are good things to say and to remember. But God raises the dead. So if God raises the dead, something that nobody else can do, what else can he do? Well, he can do anything. So what does that say about whether or not we can trust him? So how does that differ? How does trusting self differ from trusting God? The fruit of trusting self is frustration, anxiety, bitterness. The fruit of trusting God is joy, gratitude, endurance, and wisdom. We learn to help other people. We learn to comfort others who are suffering by being helped ourselves, by being comforted ourselves. When we read this passage, Paul talks about his situations, but you don't get any sense that the point of this passage is Paul. The point of this passage is God and the God of comfort. Charles Spurgeon said, I would go to the deeps a hundred times to cheer a downcast spirit. It is good for me to have been afflicted, that I might know how to speak a word in a season to one that is weary. It is good for me to have been afflicted, that I might know how to speak a word in a season to one that is weary. That is godly, eternal wisdom. And notice Paul's mutual dependence in verse 11. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The prayers of the body in Christ were effectual in Paul's life. Someone's prayers on our behalf are an expression of love. As R.C. Sproul said, prayer has real results. God has ordained his relationship to the world in such a way that he will respond to our prayers. And even Paul needed the prayers of others. And this line, many will give thanks. These thanks go to God because he delivered Paul from death, right? Remember verse 10. So one of God's purposes in answering prayer is that we will praise him for it. That we will praise him for it. So we need to pray and have others pray for our suffering, for our afflictions. It is strange. We can often be so private when it comes to suffering and affliction. We don't really want to let people in or even ask them to pray. Yet praying about it and having others pray about it and a prayer that is giving it all to God means that God gets the glory. Now, with that said, 
Some of you are probably thinking, but Bill, sometimes, sometimes God says no. And I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. So to that, I would say, well, yes, you're right. Sometimes God says no. We pray for what we want. We pray for God's grace and mercy. And sometimes we don't get what we prayed for. We don't get the answer that we were wanting. Sometimes he says no. But sometimes that bothers us because if we're honest, we felt entitled to a yes. We felt entitled to his grace and mercy. And if we feel entitled to grace or like we deserve his mercy, then to quote the movie The Princess Bride, I don't think that means what you think it means. Grace, if expected, if earned, if deserved, is not grace. God gets the glory even when his answer is no, because God is the God of all comfort. It is in his no, in our suffering, that God comforts us, thus drawing us closer to him, thus giving us the wisdom to be able to comfort others. As we said a minute ago, if one of God's purposes in answering prayer is that we will praise him, then what are we praising him for if it's just the answer that we deserved or that we're entitled to? I think we see in this passage that sometimes our suffering or our affliction is necessary. It is needed for the purpose of glorifying God. And if we glorify God in our suffering, that is for our good. So this passage is telling us that as a body of believers who go through times of suffering, that we have a, this wonderful goal found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We can have joy in our troubles and the ability to help anyone in any situation. There is a connection in common struggle. We're in this together. We face similar things in life. We have a common condition and a common Savior. We are reminded in our passage the honest two-way interdependency. It means that we bear each other's burdens. Paul is their apostle and pastor, but he still seeks their help too. He, he needs their prayers. Last week, we talked about spiritual maturity. And one of the things that we talked about was that as we mature, we are to help others, to help them to grow. So we said that once mature, we still have work to do. This passage says that we need to go through suffering. And then when we do, and we do it rightly, then we gain wisdom that we are then to use to help others. So the, the theme between last week and this week is the idea that part of being a part of a church is coming alongside and helping one another. If we're talking about growing spiritually or dealing rightly with trials, we are to come together and help one another. And we do this by being a part of a local church. Now, when I say being a part, I don't just mean showing up. I don't just mean filling a seat. We have work to do. Now, I get it. I am naturally more quiet, more reserved. I understand the temptation. It's tempting to just walk in the door, sit down, maybe say hi to one or two people so you can kind of check the box. And then go sit down and just kind of wait to be fed. Then when it's over, head out the door and go home so that we can get comfortable or maybe get some projects done. 
But though that's my temptation, I read passages like we read last week. I read passages like this one today. And I am convicted that that is not the model laid out in Scripture. I have to fight that temptation. So I go up and talk to people. I go up and try to build relationships. And to be clear, I'm not saying that all that should necessarily even happen on a Sunday morning. In fact, there may be areas of suffering that you need to talk about that it might even be inappropriate to discuss on a Sunday morning. But you establish these relationships here on Sunday. You meet the people. You begin talking. Then you get into deeper or heavier conversations over dinner on on Tuesday night or over coffee on Thursday morning. The point is that we are not alone. We do not need to go through suffering or affliction alone. We are to be a church body. So we come alongside each other. We help each other to grow and mature spiritually. When suffering occurs, we come alongside and we comfort and encourage those in affliction with the comfort with which, with which we ourselves are comforted by God, the God of all comfort. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now in prayer and we acknowledge that you are good, that you are just, that you are holy. We acknowledge these things while also confessing that we at times forget these truths about you. We sometimes think that our plans are better than yours. We often think way too highly of ourselves, and we think much too little about you. Lord, as we consider this topic, we know all too well that there are many in this room this morning that are struggling for various reasons. We know that many are struggling, and yet may not, we may not even know about it. Father, help us to be a body that values you enough to be willing to be vulnerable with each other, that we will show grace to one another and encourage one another. We cherish your grace. And we confess that we have longed too much for the comforts of this world. We have have loved the gifts more than the giver. In your mercy, help us to see that all the things we pine for are shadows, but you are substance. They are quicksands, but you are a mountain. They are shifting, but you are an anchor. We plead your forgiveness on the merits of Jesus Christ. Accept his worthiness for our unworthiness, his sinlessness for our transgressions, his fullness for our emptiness, his glory for our shame, his righteousness for our dead works, his death for our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.